Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 121. This week, we talk with Bill Bain about in-memory computing, using machine learning to enhance images and identify cucumbers, how to finally agree on a time to schedule a meeting, and spaces versus tabs again. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week, we have Bill Bain. He's founder and CEO of Scaleout Software. He has worked in parallel computing at Bell Labs Research, Intel, and Microsoft. He has founded and ran multiple startups, most recently founding Scaleout Software in 2003. He's also a member of the Seattle-based Alliance of Angels and is actively involved in the angel community. And he even worked at Microsoft through an acquisition. Man, you you have done a lot of awesome stuff. <laughs> Welcome to the well, show. I'm kind, of an old, I'm kind of an old guy. <laughs> I, I, I think, though, that it, does, it doesn't just happen automatically. Like, I don't, when I'm old, I don't think I, I'll just have that list, right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta go out there and work for it, man. So, I mean, own it. <laughs> and then I was looking at your LinkedIn page, and you have degrees in physics, and you have a PhD in electrical engineering. That's because I didn't have computer science when I got my PhD. Yeah, <laughs> that long ago, nineteen seventy-eight. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's still that's that's awesome though. So we're uh, we're really glad to have you. So, Carl, Milwaukee Code Camp. What do you want to say about that? Yeah, so I will be at Milwaukee Code Camp on October fifteenth, and if there's anybody who can can make it to the Milwaukee area. It'll be at the University of Milwaukee. Uh, this is, will be the second year in a row that we've had it, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. We don't just talk about uh, Microsoft technologies. It's a polyglot conference, so if you can make it, it's an all-day event. Looking forward to seeing you there. Okay, very cool. And who's our Infragistics Ultimate Winner of the Week? Uh, this week, it's Mike Irving. He reached out to us on Twitter. I'm actually going to hold back his comment because he sent us a news article. Okay. But if you want to get mentioned on the show like Mike, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. And we also really, really like those iTunes reviews. They really help us out. Absolutely. And I was actually, so right before the show, I was out for a walk and I was thinking about this. What we, uh, the feedback that I would like to see for the next couple of episodes, because we love it whenever you say, hey, we love the show. That's all good stuff. Whenever you send us news, we love all that. But what I would like to see, tell us a way in which you're helping spread the word about the show, because that's what really, really helps us. We just, we want to get the the word out to the, about the show to everybody, um, every, every Every potential listener out there, and I know we have a couple of people that are voraciously uh, out there spreading the the news. So just uh, let us know. I'd love to see those comments. Uh, okay, so let's jump in the news. So uh, can we finally settle this, Carl? Spaces versus tabs. <laughs> I think we we have no. Some data we're gonna now. drag. <laughs> we're, we're we're gonna just drag this out till it's uh till it's beaten to a pulp. Yeah. But yeah, uh, what had happened was somebody took the four hundred thousand largest GitHub repositories mm-hmm. and they just kind of ran some machine learning on top of it to kind of do the counting and separate it and figure out whether spaces or tabs were being used in a file. And they had you know some logic like if there was a mix, like which way it would go. Okay. Uh, so they not only came up with the winner, but the winner by language, and they put it in a really awesome chart. Uh, so pretty much the winner was spaces. And in some languages like Java, it was just massively 
used way more than than tabs. Yeah. Uh, but I thought uh, some things were interesting. It looks like I, d- I don't know much about Go at all. I'll, I'll admit that. But Go had no spaces usage. So I'm assuming there's <laughs> something in the, the syntax, language. Yeah. <laughs> the syntax says you must use tabs. So yeah. I might have to look into Go. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to use tabs, go is the language for you. Actually C, uh, C, you know what? C has more tab usage than spaces. You see that mm-hmm. by, by just like a tiny, tiny bit. So either, either go or C, but, uh, you know, I think, but I wonder how much of that is tooling as well, because there's a lot yeah. of times, like I'll just spin up a, a vanilla copy of visual studio and I hit tabs and spaces get put in and I don't realize it till half yeah. my projects over. And by then I just don't care. Yeah. And they changed that default years ago. Cause it used, to be tabs, you know, for the for the people that use Visual Studio in the uh, in the early days. So, you know, I I I from a technical perspective, I prefer tabs. But um, I think I probably mentioned this before. The fact that everybody uses spaces in most of these languages, you know, I just I just give in and I just go with the flow. Uh, okay, what do we got next here? Oh yeah, image super resolution through deep learning. So I, I Carl found this one and I looked at it. And I'm like, I was really excited about this. And it's not because I actually wanted to do this or anything, but I always had this idea like if you had you know, us as, as humans, when we look at an image and in this case, like a a really fuzzy image, right in our mind, we can sort of draw a picture of a face. Um, so I always had this idea that, you know, um, and I I've actually seen software in the past do this, but not really do a great job that you could actually look at, um, you know, even like a shape or something and turn it into like a vector graphic. Like you can get more information than actually exists in that picture through inference and just, you know, good judgment. Um, and that's, that's basically what this person did. So they, they, um, you know, b- b- using machine learning, they were able to take a derezzed photo and they were able to, um, un-derez it. <laughs> so there's a, re- yeah, there's a really cool picture here. It has four columns. Yep. And then the, and then the first column, it's got a 16 by 16, pixel image of a person's face. Yep. The next column is if you did like a bicubic interpolation on it and basically it just looks fuzzy. Yeah. The third one is after you ran it through the neural net, what the computer thinks the original was. Yeah. And then the last column, it shows you what the original actually was. Mm-hmm. And, and, I will say, I mean, there's definitely a few misses with uh, what came out through the neural net, but it, it did an amazing job uh, turning it back into a 64 by 64 pixel image. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, I, I, it seems like if machines get really good at this, I mean, even even for things like photography, being able to take a photo um, and, and for whatever reason, maybe it got cropped or something where you don't quite have all the pixels there, uh, interpolate those pixels in a, in a truly, you know, meaningful way and actually get a high high resolution photo. Um, and I'm sure there's way, there's probably ways to do this in Photoshop and things like that. Uh, holy cow. It took three hours on a GTX 1080 GPU. That's crazy. So yeah, this takes a while. It's computationally in- or intensive, <laughs> but I just think it's such a cool, uh, cool concept. So I'll have that in the show notes. You know, it has me thinking that someday that we'd even be able to sort cucumbers using this technology, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like do you think that's how far out do you think that is? I, I think maybe, uh, maybe a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me about that. All right. Uh, so there's a, a Japanese farmer and his parents uh, raise cucumbers and they're known for selling re- and raising really, really high quality cucumbers. And the thing about like the vegetable industry is there's not a standard way to categorize them. And him and his family have developed their own way. And before he takes over the farm, he wants to kind of make some of the work he has for himself less. And the most intensive part is actually grading the cucumbers according to this scale. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he doesn't want to do nearly the amount of work that his parents did. I mean, who does? Uh, so he's uh, going towards machine learning and he's built, being a non-technical person, he's a farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's found a way to uh, auto-grade uh, cucumbers with a high degree of accuracy. And it, um, he mentions that he took 7,000 pictures of what his mom has, <laughs> like has manual classified. Photos, yeah. Manual photos, yeah. Manual photos to train it. But even still, uh, if you take like a high-res photo, it, it takes too long with the 7,000 images he he blurs them down makes them actually you know like those previous images that we're talking about makes it less data to look at Mm -hmm. and even at that it takes you know a long time to train the models so it looks like where we're at in this machine learning stage isn't actually getting it to work it's just training the models if we can find a way to squeeze that down uh machine learning will just really take off yeah i think it's uh, it's the thing <laughs> yeah but he's also running uh this machine sorter on a raspberry pi 3 and uh using the google machine learning so i think that's really cool that uh tech you know this kind of technology is this accessible mm-hmm. bill have you been doing anything with machine learning well yes we're working on applications for our in-memory data grid, which incorporate machine learning oh, so that... I got, uh, that's kind of what I was wondering. Yeah. So that as you're watching a data stream flow into the grid, you can introspect on what's in the stream and give better feedback because you're learning as you go. Okay. Awesome. But I won't say we're incorporating neural network techniques, but yeah. we are doing uh, machine learning. Okay. Very cool. Um, and then here we go. You re- you mentioned this earlier, Carl. Uh, so my, yeah, yeah Mike ahead. Irving reached out to the show and he with a news item. Uh, he had gotten an email from Google saying that he is a, a Windows Phone publisher that was using uh, Google AdMob in his uh, Windows Phone ads to monetize it. Mm-hmm. And as of November first, the the SDK is going to be deprecated. Um, they'll still keep serving ads, but they can't can't guarantee that ads will continue to be served, and the SDKs will no longer be available. So essentially, uh, shutting down AdMob okay. uh, from that point forward. So if you are a Windows Phone developer and you did not get that email, you might want to either check your email box or start preparing your apps uh, to switch them over to another ad network if that's what you want to continue. Okay. So how else can I monetize my side projects, Carl? Uh, Man, we're on fire with these segues. <laughs> these segues are great. So th- there's a there's a blog post uh, that's talking about tricks to monetize your so- side projects. And with this particular article that I chose, I I really actually don't want to go into the details of it, Mm -hmm. but you know, it really made me think as I was reading it, even though these tips that he has are really for the kind of service that he's providing, there's a lot of side projects that we have that uh, could be earning us some passive income and are just kind of sitting there doing nothing. So, um, you know, if there's just a little bit that you could do to like, you know, either put advertising in or uh, start charging, or even if you are charging, you know, building up a little bit more metrics in there so you can, you know, engage your users better by sending out automated emails or stuff like that. Yeah, It does talk about a few of that onboarding stuff, like sending out the emails and uh, just learning where in the system, you know, whether people have, you know, installed but not used your app kind of just be aware of where that is and work that into your workflow, automate that so that uh, people just keep coming back and giving you money. Yeah. Eight or nine years ago, I don't know if I had mentioned this on the show before I had a, I had a site that was um, using Google ads and um, it had a lot of, a lot of traffic and I was making, I was making a couple hundred bucks a month uh, just through the ads. And then one day I decided to just look in, you know, just kind of look at it and say, is there a way to make more money at this? And what I did was I, I put in, um, 
I just did some custom .NET code for A/B testing. I think it would, you know, like eighty percent of the time it would show one ad, twenty. You know, it was like a different percentage. Mm-hmm. And Google actually had a way of, um, you know, they had different codes, so you could just use their report. Like all I had to do was show them on a random basis. They would tell me which uh, uh, which ad was most effective, and it was a it was a five x multiplier. Like I went from like two or three hundred bucks a month to a thousand a month um, just by just by thinking about like how do I optimize this a little bit. So um, yeah, I mean, if there's just just take a moment to think like, you know, Hey, I, I built this great thing. <laughs> is there, is there a way that I can, you know, provide more value to people and, and, you know, make the world a better place and then also get some money out of it. Okay. So let's talk to, uh, let's talk to Bill because this is, uh, he's got some really cool stuff here and I, I had never heard about it before the show. So that's why I'm kind of glad that we're, that we're talking about it, getting the the word out there because, um, I've heard of, you know, different, you know, obviously the big data has been a, has been a, a hot topic for the past couple of years. And we have, there's all, you know, we have things like machine learning and all these other cool technologies. And, um, honestly, whenever I first got an email about this scale out software, I was like, okay, I mean, we get a lot of these emails saying, you know, please, uh, you know, can, can I be on the show or can we have this person on the show? And honestly, I ignored it. And then I saw that you, I believe it was either you or somebody from the company had done an MSDN article. And, uh, so I read through that and I'm like, Whoa, this is cool. Like this is some real code, um, that a mortal like me that can, can use that to actually do some cool stuff. So I was like, okay, we need to talk to this guy. <laughs> so that that's why you're here. So I, you know, I'm not sure where you want to start, but what I, you know, I was thinking we what we do is we'd say, what is an in-memory data grid? Cause I keep hearing that term thrown around. Okay. Well, thank you very much for mm-hmm. having us on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, so I think the best place to start is the genesis of, of the idea, sure. because often when, you know, one of the things we look for uh, with new companies uh, with at the Alliance of Angels is where did you get the idea what's the problem? Where's yeah. the pain? What? So the, it turns out, um, you mentioned earlier, I came in on an acquisition to Microsoft and uh, a, a gentleman and I uh, brought in a technology that's now called network load balancing. And that allowed people to create web farms uh, back in the late 90s. I know that's ancient history now, but <laughs> that's when web farms were first being built. And yeah. the problem was people wanted to maintain session state and shopping carts and make those stateful. But where do you put the state? So people were pushing the state to SQL Server and finding out that SQL Server became a huge bottleneck. And furthermore, SQL Server boxes tended to be very expensive and to allocate a SQL Server to host session state was inappropriate. Uh, so it created a lot of problems. And what you really want is to be able to move state as close to the service that's uh, managing that state as you can, and also put it in a form that's very easily consumable by the business logic in that service. And so the, the term we used back then was distributed caching. And, and of course, you know about app fabric caching, which is an, uh, an instance of a distributed cache, uh, formerly called velocity for people that don't know that term, app fabric caching. And uh, so what's happening here is we're hosting the fast changing state of lives of a live service, which might comprise multiple instances on a, in a cluster so that it can scale. That fast changing state uh, is held in memory in an in-memory data grid, uh, which is an out of process store for that data. Uh, and that's transparently uh, uh, partitioned across a set of servers in a cluster so that you can scale both the storage capacity and the access bandwidth to that data. And so distributed cache has this ability that you can just add more service instances and they can seamlessly retrieve that state with the same key namespace that all the other services instances are using. And that way you can build out a very large web farm uh, and uh, handle lots of sessions, lots of shopping carts. And just as the workload increases, just add more servers or now virtual servers to handle that workload. That's the basics. That's how it started. Yeah. So are you, you're not just like copying everything to every machine, right? And you're in, and conversely, you're not just storing 
storing it all on one machine, right? Exactly. In fact, uh, the way you want to do this is you want to store data on, in at least one place, but perhaps two or more, but right. not all, but not on all servers, or you lose the storage scalability. Exactly. So what we do with our product is store it on either one or two additional servers. We call those replicas. Now I know you brought up uh, in our uh, notes here about reliable connections, and I think it'll mm-hmm. be our uh, collection. Sorry, I think it'll be interesting to compare and contrast these Absolutely. technologies. There's some very interesting similarities and very interesting differences between those two. But the idea of maintaining multiple replicas, and in fact, in maintaining a quorum of replicas for committing uh, changes to the repository, is a is a concept that's in a in memory data grid as well as reliable collections. Cool, I'm excited. <laughs> so how? Okay, go. Oh, me? Okay. Yeah. So the next step <laughs> is uh, uh, that we can talk about. We can talk more about that and how does scaling occur? What does it mean to scale? Uh, how do you know if you're scaling well? We can talk about those things. But the other thing that's interesting is and some, is this transformation that started to occur in about 2008 or 2009, which is with the big data trend and the interest in Hadoop and all of that, is the integration of computation into an in-memory data grid. So now you can do computation on the data you're hosting in the grid. And that, that opens up the possibility to, to do some really interesting things. In particular, if you have an incoming data stream from many sources, uh, so that's many data streams, you can process that those streams in parallel and update the state of the grid and provide real-time feedback to a live system, like an Internet of Things system, manufacturing system, or patient monitoring system. Uh, there are many, many examples. We can talk about a few case studies that are interesting in that area. It's just this notion of integrating computing with the grid that makes the grid really have power. And I think that's a, an area in which this technology departs from the goals of reliable collections. Okay. So, you know, I'm looking at this as a .NET developer. So how can I, you know, take this concept of uh, in-memory data grids and combine it with something like Link? Because I want to be able to use technology that I already know to access this. Okay, sure. Let me answer that question. But I want to give you a caveat because I, I also read that one of the two of you is wired in C-sharp, right? Uh, your yeah. brain is wired <laughs> in C-sharp. That's you, right, Jason? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, so I'm wired in C, actually. So okay. I'm not the C-sharp expert in our company. Uh, but uh, uh, I can answer your questions, but I don't want your audience to, to think that I'm a C-sharp expert. So if I get well, something... Well, so, so maybe we should get this out of the way. So this is yeah. completely language independent then is, is what I'm uh, guessing, right? Uh, yes, grids are. Okay. Uh, are we have uh, a very strong C-sharp API. Uh, in fact, our original APIs were targeted for C-sharp and .NET, and then we ported to Java, and we also have C++. But I'm just saying myself personally, I wrote most of the server side of this, and we, our, our particular technology is unusual. I'll get back to Link in a second. It, our, it's unusual in that the server side was written in C, uh, which I know myself, wow, that's kind of crazy. But the reason for it is to run an unmanaged code so you don't have problems with garbage collection and, and overflowing the heap that, that you might have in Java and that sort of problem. Okay, so as far as Link goes, that's a very interesting question. So it starts with how do you represent the data in the grid? And so, of course, uh, we're we're representing the data as serialized objects, just the way reliable collections do. I'm using that as an anchor point for you know comparing and contrasting. And so, objects ha- uh, have properties, have class properties, and you want to be able to do link query on those properties. So what we've provided is a link provider uh, that will take a link query uh, based on the class that's uh, the objects in the grid are, are instances of and will allow you to query all of the objects by property or set of properties and return the objects that match uh, the, the query specification. Now, um, so th- I hope that answers your question. And what we found out was uh, no matter how much uh, we, we've implemented a pretty large subset of Link, but, you know, there's always something more and uh, that we that we pushed off the stuff that we couldn't do in parallel on the server to being computed in 
the client and doing final filtering in the client. But what we found was that there was always a customer that wanted to introspect on the objects for query more than we could possibly do with Link. So what we did was we added an extension. And I think, Jason, you might have been referring to the Visual Studio uh, Visual Studio article. Um, yep. Magazine yeah, exactly. Article. Yeah, that's, kind of, that, that's where I saw. I was just like, okay, this is really cool because it was all Link based and, and yeah, uh, putting objects into memory and then querying them across the whole set of machines. It was really cool. Yeah. So but the, the, the key the key insight we had when well, we were working with an oil and gas company uh, that wanted to look at the objects and analyze the contents and go beyond what you could easily write in a link query. But as but the problem you always have with a query, especially of a very large data store, is you can easily saturate the network by bringing too many results over the wire back to the client. Right. Uh, and so when you end up getting very poor performance. Furthermore, anytime you do a query, uh, all of the servers that make up the grid, and you might have 6, 20, maybe 100 servers that implement an in-memory data grid, uh, you're, they're all going to work to look for the objects. They're all going to process the query. So it's an order in operation, um, not an order one operation uh, So in time. Uh, so what we did is we added this ability to have an extension method on the link query so that uh, we would ship code out to the grid and then run that code after performing a standard link query, then go ahead and run the user's method that returns a Boolean result and let that user do some complex computation. You know, you can do a spectral analysis. You can do anything you want on the data and then decide, oh, this is an interesting object. And so if you think about it, we, we are making link query a, an engine for data parallel computation because as part of the query, you're actually processing user code on the grid servers to select and filter, refine the query results that you want to return back to the client. Mm -hmm. And so we built that as a bridge to fully data parallel computation. And we can talk about, if there's time, some of the next steps after that. Infragistics, Ultimate UX and UI Tools, and Enterprise Mobility Solutions, SharePlus and Report Plus, enable high-performance apps on any device, faster data insights, simplified collaboration, and market-leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistics' Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. A lot of information getting thrown at us here. So I'm, I'm trying to like sort and categorize this. Okay. So right. I guess, I guess I need your product to, to like, you know, figure out your product. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, I, I have my code. Um, I've seen, you know, some of those link queries, but it sounds like what I'm doing, I, you know, I'm, we're distributing the data. You said we can do distributed computation. And I like that if I'm understanding correctly, based on like some of the code that I saw through the MSDN article, I'm able to write a query that's going to go out there and it's going to First, it's going to figure out what data is actually part of that. Then it's going to run some computation on that and in, in a distributed fashion. And then it's going to return all of that to me. I mean, is that sort of the that's sort of the short, concise version? Yeah. And and I think what's key is that the the view of the application's view of data is is objects and not relational view. Yeah, it's really simple, which right. that, that always shows me like when 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 software is really good, it makes it makes all this complexity look, you know, really easy. And in, in this particular case, it's exposing it to me in something that's really 
really easy for me to understand and code against. Right. And, and what you want to do is put all the machinery under the hood so it's not visible. And, and the application view is as simple as you can possibly make it. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, uh, that brings up a topic. I, I've spent the last 24 hours researching reliable collections. They okay. Were, <laughs> you know, I, go, I go around our doctor well, developers. We should probably you know back up. That? Yeah, we should probably back up a second. So reliable collections are part of um, Azure service, or I shouldn't say Azure. They're part of uh, Microsoft service fabric, which is like a just, you know, we've talked about on the show before, but it's a, like a, it's, it's, it's really kind of a similar concept. Like I, I want to have my data next to my code and it's a framework for, it's really positioned as a framework for building microservices. So I think it's positioned a little bit different, but I want to make sure our listeners are kind of on the same page so you can compare. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah. I think like one of the differences would be in a grid, you, you would directly access the objects in the grid with mm-hmm. create, read, update, delete, you know, different names like add instead of create, whatever, yeah. uh, or put is a, is a name used by Java. Um, but the key difference is that you don't have to do a transaction. You don't have to take a transactional view of your updates to the collection that's hosted in the grid. The idea is to just make it as close to in memory as possible. In fact, with our C sharp um, APIs, we use operator overloading so that you have a collection view of the data in the grid, and it almost doesn't look like it's it's in a different process. But uh, I think we sort of blurred over this. But in memory data grids are out of process data stores, so they serialize the data going in and out of the grid okay. uh, with one ring which is that they use client-side caching so that when you push uh, an object to the grid, you are also keeping a copy in memory uh, in our client-side cache. And that gives you the same kind of latency of that you would get with reliable collections because of the fact that the data is already available by yeah, reference your, your piece of the grid is sitting next to you then, right? Well, the, your most recently accessed objects are recently right. updated. Yes, right. exactly. Cool. And then how big can this scale? Well, that's uh, it. Can, it's constrained by whatever resource eventually bottlenecks and today it's the network mm-hmm. so you know with InfiniBand you can scale much more than you can scale with a gigabit ethernet but generally speaking we see customers with 6 to 20 servers in a grid hosting you know maybe 64 gigabytes per server uh, but uh, we've demonstrated uh, one terabyte data sets hosted on uh, several servers in in, uh, in the cloud I almost said the name of another cloud I don't want to do that <laughs> <show>. <laughs> Azure we'll say yeah Azure <laughs> didn't I say that Azure yes uh, so uh but, uh, uh, you know, but it could scale to hundreds or thousands of servers. You hear about clusters of a thousand servers running Hadoop applications, but they're not necessarily trying to maintain a, a sequentially consistent view of one right. data set, right. which is what an in-memory data grid. Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing like a divide and conquer strategy. Right, exactly. Okay, okay. so am I better off than if I was going to host this in Azure, would I be better off scaling up and using like the biggest machines that Azure has to offer? That way you don't have to worry about network? Or is it okay to go out and use just a, a ton of machines? And then and then rely on the network. Well, it's always better to scale up until you run out of resources within a instance, okay. and then move across multiple then instances out. on okay. different servers. But you always need at least two or more servers for reliability, so that ah, you can host good replicas. Point. Good point. Right. Good point. Okay, so maybe I should start with like two smaller machines, then scale those up, and right. then scale out from that point. Okay. Uh, except for cost, sometimes if you look at the you know the right. cost, it might be cheaper to have uh, more instances with less memory if the costs work out that way. Okay. And Azure does have InfiniBand support on some instances. I don't know if you've uh, played around with that at all. Uh, no, we're aware of that. And uh, that's okay. uh, fantastic. Plus, you have NetDirect support, which is uh, RDMA support, meaning you can get at the network really fast and bypass TCP. Yeah. And that's something that um, that we are looking at providing to our customers. But uh, it's putting Azure right in the forefront. Ah, very cool. Okay. So, uh, you know, we, we mentioned Azure. Like, is there anything special to deploy to Azure? Does it, does it care what the environment is? Does it differentiate between cloud and not cloud? Well, 
Well, uh, we should talk about the class of in-memory data grids and then our product. And yeah, you know, our product has particular support for Azure. We have a uh, our in, our management console allows you to deploy directly to Azure um, without going through other UIs and manage seamlessly the same way you would on-premise. So you can switch from an on-premise to an Azure-based deployment uh, within our same management UI. Uh, which, plus, uh, from the point of view of the customer, the real concern is when you write an application, how does your client find the instances of the grid? Yeah. And what we've done, it, it's it's fairly easy to do that on-premise. Uh, you can use, typically, you, you would use multicast and populate IP addresses mm. into each no, client. No multicast in Azure. Uh, but no, you can, wouldn't do that in general in the cloud, and many uh, enterprise customers don't allow that on-premise either. Uh, so what we've done is built uh, infrastructure uh, uh, using Microsoft's uh, Blob Store that allows you to host, uh, to know about where the instances are and keep track of them as they're added and removed. So okay. we've made it transparent, but that is the issue you have in the cloud is that IP addresses can come and go. Okay. Yeah, Project Orleans used the uh, the same strategy that was an actor model framework that was used for Halo and uh, some other things. They they stored the that information into storage, yeah, so they could all look at that and and understand where their their peers were. Right. Okay. And could I ever could I ever do like a hybrid approach? I mean, does does it does is it aware of slow connections? You know, if I have two two um if I have ten machines, five are are next to each other, another five are next to each other, but the link between those two groups of five are really slow. Uh, well, that's a great question, and that question goes back for decades, actually. In fact, I, you know, I worked in the cluster group at uh, Microsoft for a while, MSCS group, and uh, uh, you know, the classic problem was if you have uh, a Wolfpack cluster in Manhattan and another in New Jersey, exactly, and, and the customer wants to make that into one Wolfpack cluster, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Exactly. And and the general rule of thumb is it's a bad idea. I won't speak for Wolfpack today. <laughs> But uh, for us, what, what we did is we took the approach of uh, you want to have multiple uh, grids at different sites and then connect them through a WAN-based mechanism. And we provide a mechanism, we call it GeoServer. But what it does is it allows applications to transparently access data from a remote grid and to do distributed locking between grids and seamlessly migrate objects. Uh, but, but essentially, the two grids maintain their own availability zones, if you will. So we're doing heartbeating within a grid in each location, but we're not trying to heartbeat across uh, the two locations. Part of the problem, one of the challenges that you you don't want to have to face is if you lose the connection between two grids and you're doing replication across uh, the the you know the, the channel there, that you might actually lose a lot more data than you would if you manage availability in each grid independently and right. then use a WAN-based mechanism for data access. Okay. Well, it sounds like you're pretty ready for this. So speaking of uh, speaking of locking the. Um if you if you have like multiple, I mean, obviously we're going to have like multiple clients from different threads trying to access this. We have somebody updating the data, and we have somebody trying to read the data at the same time. So, how, what does that look like in this world? Well, it's uh, very simple. Uh, a pessimistic and optimistic distributed locking on a per object basis is the way that's typically handled. And uh, I think what's important is the consistency model. So, when you put data into the grid and then yeah. you send a message to another thread, what is that thread's view of the data? Exactly. Now, we have always taken since we introduced the product in 2005, we've taken the view of maintain a sequential consistency model uh, because of the fact that you want to make sure that any thread that knows about the grid and knows about your update will see the data you put in the grid. Uh, it turns out that a lot of grids don't do that. In particular, one grid that doesn't is Redis. Redis uses an eventual consistency model. Yep. And and so, which means that if there is a server failure or network problem, you may or may not see the latest data uh, as, as the time moves forward and recovery is done. Um, so 
So we chose not to do that because we felt that we wanted to target enterprise applications that manage business logic state for which you cannot afford to serve stale data. Uh, okay. And so that's a trade-off. But then you get into the cap theorem, right? I guess uh, you guys have talked about it's the cap theorem and how... Uh, no, we haven't. Uh, okay. So, you know, it's just that you, you, there's always a trade-off. You, you never get something for nothing, right? right. If you want to have consistency, uh, then, you know, then you have to, to some extent, sacrifice availability. You have to be willing to say, I can't serve you data because I can't be sure it's the correct data. We have a network outage. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, these three things, partitioning, uh, consistency and availability, they trade off to some extent with each other. That's a, just an interesting challenge that you have when you implement distributed data structures like this. Absolutely. And a lot of people call eventual consistency, you know, never consistent. <laughs> well, it could be, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the thing. In like a live system, you know, you never, you can never make those assumptions. So yeah, absolutely. In real life, it's hard to tell what customers really want, you know, because they, they want availability. They don't want the grid to go offline, uh, but it's not clear how much uh, serving them the right data is, is, is as important is keeping mm -hmm. the service up and running in some cases. I think more in the e-commerce situation, it's okay if maybe the shopping cart didn't get updated, but don't tell the customer you can't access the, you know, the website. Yeah. <laughs> so when is uh, an in-memory data grid not the right answer for a solution? When you don't uh, need scalability, it's all based around scalability. For As you want to be able to handle large workloads of fast-changing data. So if your workload does, it does not scale and can fit easily within one server, one instance, uh, you would not need an in-memory data grid. You would just use an in-process mechanism, like an in-process cache. Okay. Is there is there a free version of this? Like, how do how do I get started with this thing? Yes. Well, in our particular case, uh, and of course, every vendor is different, and you know there are open source uh, products that are available. Uh, we we did not go open source. I don't think we're going to have that discussion today. But we <laughs> we're one of the holdouts, and there's some very good uh, business reasons for it. But uh, that's probably the topic of another uh, discussion. Yeah. But but in any case, uh, uh, we have have a free version, you can run us, uh, download our product from the website, and you can download it without having to go through the uh, the part where you give your name and email. You can just go directly, find the MSI, and download it. Um, okay. And then and then you can run it on one server with you know f uh, without any license fee. But then when you want to run a multiple servers, we do charge a license fee. Oh, and, well, that's pretty easy, yeah. Yeah, so you can play with it, kick the tires, and then, of course, uh, you know, we have very liberal policy about evaluation of the more advanced features, like the in-memory computing. So what is the pricing when we do need to scale it to more than one server. Uh, yeah, so I think I would refer people to uh, our uh, sales people. You know, it's mm -hmm. we, we do what are called server unit licenses. So uh, a group of, I think it's eight uh, uh, logical processors processors are uh, considered one server unit. Well, what we found is people have scaled up greatly since we first introduced our pricing. We had to move to that so we could accommodate servers that have, you know, 32, 64 cores, uh, which is not that unusual anymore. Right. Um, Right, right. Enterprise deployments. So we have a, a license fee for a server unit license, and then um, as you add more and more, then you know that we just scale that. So I'm not giving you a number, but I think just contact skill on sales. It's not that expensive. Okay. But it, you know we are targeting enterprise customers that you know typically uh, you know large corporations that are hosting mission critical data and uh, mission critical uh, applications. So that's why we have enterprise level pricing so we can give them the support they need. A big part of what we're doing is providing support and uh, assistance for them to develop and maintain their applications. 
and to, for us to add new features that meet their specific needs. Most of the features that are in our product have come directly from customer requests. Okay. Um, yeah, I know we went we went like super fast through everything. Um, anything else that you wanted to kind of dive into anymore or clarify? Yeah. Yes, I really think it would be interesting to your audience to hear a little bit about in-memory computing and and what yeah. you know what is that yeah, about? Yeah, we sort of yeah we sort of glazed over it, saying like you can compute in memory, but sure, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, so what's really uh, interesting here is that you know in-memory data grids are hosting live fast-changing data. So this might be you know we have like five different vertical markets that we think are interesting. Like you're tracking vehicles in a rental car fleet. That's one you know getting telemetry from their GPSs and their their speed and all of that. Another would be uh, monitoring patients that have pacemaker data, all these thousands of patients, right? Another financial services, tracking market price changes to uh, thousands of portfolios that a hedge fund might manage. Um, and another is e-commerce. You're tracking customers on a website and looking to see what are they trying to buy? Are they having trouble? Is it easy? I mean, I, you know, the cucumber example, if the guy was trying to make a decision about the cucumbers on the fly, you know, while he was picking the cucumber, then, you know, it might fit this, this infrastructure. But in any case, you're tracking fast-changing data. You need to be able to introspect on it so that you can do something useful in terms of getting feedback to the live system. Um, another case would be a manufacturing floor. You're watching uh, all machines and looking to see whether a machine is going to fail or looking at a windmill farm that we have a customer that's deploying us for that. And so you want to be able to move. Uh, the key insight I think we've had over the last four years is if you have a scalable problem with uh, lots of data that doesn't fit conveniently in a server, you want to be able to move the computation to the data. You don't think in terms of the service, you think in terms of the data and what computation needs to be done on that data. And this allows you to do very low latency and yet uh, introspective uh, stream processing because mm-hmm. as the stream data comes in, you use that to enhance a model of the live system, you know, like a model of the patient. You know the patient. I was going to say, or you get one value in and you're going to sort of reevaluate all the data that you had historically, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. There's a case, we were presenting this to a large corporation, you would know, uh, and they said, oh yeah, here's the example. They use the anti-terrorism example that if you're watching people at airports, you know, enter and exit, and then you want to be able to to be able to, as you do the pattern matching on the faces, determine whether there's somebody who you think is a person of interest. And then the thing, the next thing you have to do after that is say, well, who else might be associated with them that has entered in the last five minutes? So okay. you can immediately, uh, you know, go from, you know, it, computing in the small on that one piece of data, that one person to look at everybody who's in the airport and see, is there a pattern emerging. And that's where oh, this that's ability cool. to yeah to do data parallel computation on a large data set is really valuable. And so that's where we're pushing this technology to leverage its ability to do very low latency, but scalable data parallel computation. Okay. Very cool. Anything else? Uh, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more to say, really, but I... No, I it's really, it's, it's yeah. really cool stuff. It's okay. really cool stuff. So yeah, I recommend uh, we'll have a link to the MSDN article in the, in the show notes. Cause I thought from a, you know, as from a developer perspective, I always start to think like you know what show me the code and then we can sort of talk about those other things and now so now we've we've had both pieces of that so uh very cool so yeah we encourage people to go check that out uh okay so let's get to the app of the week um so my i actually picked the app 
of the week, which is find time. So it is, uh, I think it's findtime.microsoft.com. So this is actually an office 365 add-in for, for outlook. And, um, I don't, I don't think I've been too, too vocal about this on the show, kind of the historical issue with, uh, um, you know, trying to schedule guests. It's, it's really like the most difficult problem that we have to solve. <laughs> um, so find time, I, I've actually used a couple different products for doing this, where what they do is they send out this, um, you know, you pick some time slots, it sends it out to all the different people that are going to be in that meeting. And it says, Hey, you need to vote, let us know what times work. And then it sort of finds the common times that work for everybody. But my complaint about all of these products is that they wouldn't block off the time. So I'd send out a find time request and I'd say, okay, do you want to meet at one o'clock or two o'clock on Monday? Then I, I would go and I'd go to schedule another meeting. And then I'd be like, Oh, do you want to meet on Monday at two o'clock or three o'clock here? Not realizing that I had already, you know, said to the first person that we might do this at two o'clock. So the first person comes in, Oh, two o'clock works for me. Second person comes in this work, you know, it was only at two o'clock. Um, and, and now I've just double booked everything. So this thing is awesome. It's free works with office 365. Whenever you go to actually schedule a meeting, it, there's just a button you push, you pick your slots. It's like the easiest thing in the world. And it blocks off those times until, um, until, um, everybody has picked one and then it will actually send out all the emails. And it just, it, this is exactly, if I had to build, this, this is exactly what I would have built. Um, so I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Okay, Carl, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? Uh, there is a new GitHub page uh, for the UWP Community Toolbox. Mm-hmm. And what this is, is if you're uh, developing a UWP application, here's just a bunch of uh, controls, add-ons, extras, any kind of toolboxy things that you might normally be creating yourself, uh, you can put out into this uh, community toolbox. Uh, mm. It's uh, set up initially by Microsoft, but anybody can push to it. And I know that they're taking in a lot of community uh, requests. And in addition, uh, we've had on uh, in the past talking about the notifications uh, 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 tool to uh, help make you toast notifications and, right. and stuff like that. That's actually been rolled into this. So if you want the latest and greatest, pretty much one spot for UWP goodness, uh, go check out this project. Yeah, I was just looking at the uh, the committers and it's like half these people are my team. <laughs> <laughs> really, and you didn't even know it. Really cool stuff. Yeah, even uh, some friends of the show that have come on here. Yep. Uh, Lance McCarthy's in here. Uh, Jason Short is in here. Um, and then pretty much everybody else will be on the show at some point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bill. So we we play this uh, really goofy game on here. It's a game for kids, but you know, we, we can all play it, right? So what I need you to do is I need you to pick a number between one and four inclusive. Okay. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, you can tell me. Yeah, you, gotta t- you have to tell me. Otherwise, the game's not fun <laughs> at all. <laughs> Three. <laughs> Three. <laughs> okay. Would you rather lie in a pit full of worms or lie in a pit full of rats with no teeth? Uh, worms. Yeah, definitely worms. I that's yeah. What what about you, Carl? I worms, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the rats, that's just terrifying. The worms, uh, whatever, like that's like Monday. Uh, okay, pa- Carl, pick a number. I'll take 3. Okay. Well, you here you pick 3. Okay. Oh. <laughs> well, you I think the, that's the first time I've done that, too. Yeah, do, you, do, you, do you, <laughs> number 2, okay. Would you rather own only one collection of clothes that fits perfectly but is made from furry carpet or always have all of your clothes be soaking wet when you put them on furry carpet <laughs> furry carpet yeah that's that's yeah these were easy ones i gotta cross these off because i think i think you had that one before carl but um it was before i purchased the sharpie marker 
Okay, well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on the uh, on the show. We uh, we really appreciate it. Um, we're going to have a whole bunch of links to you in the show notes, but um, uh, where can people find you? Where's the best place? Well, I think scaleoutsoftware.com, our website, is the place I'd recommend. And then also our okay. uh, at Twitter at scaleout underscore INC, Inc. Okay, very awesome. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay, and you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So thanks. Thanks again, Bill. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.